From New England Public Radio in Springfield, Massachusetts, this is NEPR News Now. Stories you really should not miss. Thanks for listening. I'm Sam Hudzik. Coming up, the apparent suicide in prison of former Patriots tight end Aaron Hernandez has advocates and lawmakers wondering if Massachusetts' criminal justice system is offering the right programs to help inmates with mental health needs. So I think that hopefulness is something that we want to create for people, and I think that does tie into the issue of suicide. Then we check in on progress a year after the state took over the schools in Southbridge. Among the lingering disagreements in this Worcester County town, whether school leadership did enough in the past to reach out to the town's growing Hispanic community. If there is no hand on the other side when you outreach, that's not the fault of the district, although the state would like to blame the town and their prejudice and all this here. This town, I do not think, is prejudiced. I think this town is tired. And we wrap up with a visit to a biology lab at Mount Holyoke College where researchers receive a package from SeaWorld, the penis of an orca whale. Yeah, here. So this is the tip right there. You see the urethra at all or no? How scientists, increasingly under political attack, are looking to defend this kind of work as helping build a foundation of scientific knowledge that could one day lead to big breakthroughs. All that just ahead on NEPR News Now. Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker says he has faith in his corrections commissioner. That's following the apparent suicide of former New England Patriots tight end Aaron Hernandez, who is serving a life sentence for murder at the state's maximum security prison in Shirley. The governor says the number of prison suicides in the Bay State has declined over the past decade, but acknowledges that even one is too many. Look, anytime anybody kills himself in a prison, um Something clearly went wrong. Hernandez's high-profile death is likely to become a point of discussion for Beacon Hill legislators as they seek to overhaul the state's criminal justice system. More now from WBUR's Steve Brown at the State House. Proposed changes to the criminal justice system have been in the works for over a year. The state turned to the Council of State Government's Justice Center, an outside think tank, to work with officials and other stakeholders in formulating a report which will serve as a framework for a bill now being developed. While the report did not address prison suicide directly, it does call for more programming to be offered to address the mental health needs of individuals who find themselves in the criminal justice system. Will Brownsberger is the Senate chair of the legislature's Judiciary Committee. There is definitely a lot of momentum, I think, to get some changes made, uh, the the kinds of things that we've been talking about to improve people's prospects in prison and coming out of prison. So I think that hopefulness is something that we want to create for people, and I think that does tie into the issue of suicide. Senator Brownsberger says DOC does have a lot of protocols in place that are oriented to suicide prevention, but adds he doesn't feel comfortable commenting on the extent to which DOC has all the right protocols in place. One legislator wonders if DOC should be the agency overseeing the mental health programs that are being offered inside the walls. Representative Ruth Balzer of Newton has filed a bill that would give the Department of Mental Health the oversight responsibility of mental health services in the state's prisons. I don't think we're doing a good enough job. Uh, I think that there are mental health services provided to some prisoners, and, and the DOC, I think, understands that this is a priority. But again, uh, they are public safety professionals and not mental health professionals. And I think it would be important to have the mental health authority of the state be more involved 
in the care of the mentally ill who are incarcerated. Aaron Hernandez is not the first high-profile prison suicide to spark talk of the need for legislative changes. The death of John Salvi back in 1996 did as well. Salvi was an abortion opponent who was serving a life prison sentence for two deadly attacks on reproductive health clinics in Brookline. After he killed himself inside his cell at MCI Cedar Junction, a bill was filed that would require DOC to screen all incoming prisoners for mental illness and substance abuse, and if the evaluation found mental illness to be present, would require the department to provide mental health services at least equivalent to that available in the community. The bill died in a committee. After Salvi's death, his conviction, which was being appealed, was set aside by the sentencing judge. A bill was filed in 1997 that would have prevented a court from vacating a conviction upon the death of the defendant, but that bill never became law. Now, one of Hernandez's lawyers has indicated that since his client's murder conviction was under appeal, he will request that that conviction be quashed as well. For New England Public Radio, I'm Steve Brown at the State House in Boston. And next week, we're going to have a story on another proposal that might make it into that criminal justice package. It would keep offenders in the juvenile court system longer until they turn 21. One of our news department interns, Leah Willingham, has been looking closely at that proposal. And, well, it's super complicated. She'll break down the pros and cons for us on our next episode. Now to schools. Back in January, Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker took a moment in his State of the Commonwealth address to mention struggling school districts that have been taken over by the state, a process known as receivership. He said they've benefited. And we encourage the Board of Elementary and Secondary Education to continue to use this tool. No more districts have been taken over since then, but there are currently three under state leadership, Lawrence, Holyoke, and the most recent, Southbridge. It's a town of 16,000 people in the central part of the state on the border with Connecticut. In 2015, the district's graduation rate was 64.7 percent. According to the state's education commissioner, just 41 percent of students reached proficiency in English language arts on the standardized test that year. The numbers were even lower in math and science. Suspension rates were high. So last January, the state took control of the Southbridge schools. Under receivership, a state-appointed superintendent known as a receiver can hire and fire teachers pretty freely and set priorities without the approval of the local school committee. So over a year in, how's it going? New England Public Radio's Henry App takes us there. You need to be on the warrior. School lets out at the town's middle high school, and it's a swirl of energy as a circle of yellow buses wait to take students home. Soon they're gone, it's quiet again, and I head inside to meet David Williams. Hi, my name is David Williams, I'm Southbridge Education Association president. And you're a teacher here at the high school? I teach Introduction to Physics. Williams has taught in Southbridge since 1994, and he says he's led the union off and on for the past 15 years. Unlike Holyoke, where the head of the teachers' union was a vocal opponent of the state takeover, in Southbridge, Williams and his union welcomed it. We needed receivership. Um, I don't believe this district would ever get dig itself out of the hole without it, somebody. Why is that? Well, for a couple of reasons, but one has to be that we have not done a proper superintendent search since 2010. Williams counts eight different people who sat in the superintendent's chair in that time. So just imagine that you're in a boat in the middle of a lake and, you know, one person tells you to row, you know, north. And then a couple minutes later, 
you know, somebody else gets into the boat and says, oh, no, we're not going north, we're going east. The result, he says, you never get out of the middle of the lake. They've never really been able to stick with anything long enough uh, to gain any traction in any areas. So, yes, I think that's one core reason, and, and there's others. That's Dr. Jessica Heisinger. She's the state-appointed receiver for Southbridge. She came from Cambridge, where she was an assistant superintendent. Heisinger says one of her biggest jobs is battling a negative perception of the town's schools. And that really doesn't reflect the reality of what happens in classrooms every single day. There are a lot of tremendous things going on in these schools, in these classrooms. There's amazing teachers working with our kids. There are new programs that um, we've put in place this year. And much more to come, Heisinger says. She's asking for patience. But that's not exactly what she's received from the head of the local school committee, Scott Lazo. Hi. I meet him at the bar he owns, Lazo's Cafe. It's filled with football trophies from the local Pop Warner team, which he used to coach, and signs from President Donald Trump's campaign. Lazo calls the state takeover a dictatorship. When you put a person in charge with all the power, finance, policy, everything, there is no check and balance, no accountability on what she's spending, how she's spending it. She just waves her hand and it happens. Well, you, you mentioned that you've been on the school committee uh, at different times and in, in leadership positions in this in the town uh, for many years. Uh, do you take some of the blame for some of the conditions that preexisted the receiver when, when she no, got here? because every time I seem to run for office, it's to put a fire out, okay, uh, The receiver's been here a very short time. She really doesn't even know the town. Back at the high school, teachers' union head David Williams sees it differently. He's very complimentary of Heisinga and says she's fit in well. But he thinks teachers need to be better compensated for some additional days they now have to work. And he says parts of the turnaround plan feel like they were cut and pasted from other districts under state control. And he's not happy with another aspect of the takeover, something called the receiver review, which 28 teachers were put under in December. It destroyed the, the morale of this building. We even lost teachers who weren't on the receiver review because I think there's, the receiver review did very little to improve the district, but it did a lot to um, make people think that they need to look for a new job somewhere else. Under the review, no teachers have been dismissed so far, but Williams says out of the 28 teachers who were scrutinized, at least 16 of them are either retiring or looking for jobs in other districts. For her part, Heisinger says the review is ongoing, and her turnaround plan does not include extensive changes to the teaching staff. A central part of the turnaround plan, though, improving support for Southbridge students who are learning English. For years, the state has criticized Southbridge for failing to serve the town's growing Hispanic community. Here's one example. For 29% of students, their first language is not English. But before receivership, there was no one heading the English learners' department. Now there is. That's a start, says Heisinger, whose mother is Puerto Rican. Institutional racism or racism is not something that is unique to Southbridge. It's something that, you know, is common, not only all over the Commonwealth, but all over our nation. And, you know, concerns about racism or institutional racism was highlighted in earlier reports in this district in 2010, again in 2015 in the District Level 5 review. Um, And it had never really been confronted. But school committee chair Scott Lazo bristles at criticism the town has received from the state that Southbridge has long neglected to reach out to its Hispanic population. Let me, let me, let me, that's a a lot of bullshit. What, what we have here is outreach 
but the thing is, outreach is a two-way street. If there is no hand on the other side when you outreach, that's not the fault of the district, although the state would like to blame the town and their prejudice and all this here. This town, I do not think, is prejudiced. I think this town is tired of extending its hand and nobody being on the other end. Early this year, the release of an audit of the district's special education system brought issues of race and racism in Southbridge to a head. It included some highly offensive anonymous comments attributed to a teacher that were directed at the town's Puerto Rican community. A public outcry followed, leading to a community meeting back in January, which opened up a long overdue conversation, says Dr. Heisinger. It has led to the development of a diversity leadership team of community members who are ready to undertake uh, this conversation, which I think is going to be important to not only the healing of Southbridge, but also to us uh, moving on into the future and ensuring equity and access and opportunity for all children, regardless of race, gender, creed, background, religion. Um, So do I regret uh, making those comments public? Uh, No. Uh, Did I learn lessons in process? Yes. And I think that that's part of, uh, you know, leadership. Right. Uh, And but I think the end result was the right end result. And we're going to be a stronger community for it. One year in, it's too early to tell whether receivership has worked in Southbridge. Test scores and graduation rates for this year won't be out for a few more months. Heisinger says she'll be here till the job is done. That report comes to us from New England Public Radio's Henry App. Last weekend's National March for Science and satellite events around New England marked a departure for many scientists. Until recently, they did not consider political activism part of their job. But over the past few years, a growing number of researchers, including targets of political attacks, say it's time to come out swinging. New England Public Radio's Karen Brown reports. So I'm I'm looking at this slide and I see mostly blue. Sometimes scientific Um, research can be a slog, slide after slide of thinly sliced tissue under a microscope. Um, And so there's collagen and there's a little bit of fat. And sometimes it's pretty darn exciting. Holy cow. Oh, wow, Dara. Isn't this amazing? Oh, my goodness. I happen to be visiting biologist Patricia Brennan on one of those days. Her lab at Mount Holyoke College in South Hadley, Massachusetts, has just been delivered an orca whale penis. Return address is SeaWorld, where the animal, also called a killer whale, died of natural causes. It's enormous. <laughs> wow. Although Brennan has spent 20 years studying the sex organs of marine animals, she's never seen anything this big. It takes up an entire lab sink. Yeah, here. So this is the tip right there. You see the urethra at all or no? Brennan looks over the pink and fleshy organ with her lab assistant. It's still mostly frozen in a tight coil, so she slowly unfurls it. It's not super long. It's just wide. You mean the the shaft part or which? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brennan was so eager to start exploring that she forgot to put on her lab coat. It's not easy to procure this kind of specimen, and she doubts many others have. She'll be looking for clues to mating trends and evolutionary advantages. And just the fact that we just don't know what we're going to find, right, is so exciting. It's like, I don't know. Brennan is a basic scientist. That means investigating how things work and not necessarily applying that knowledge to a particular problem. When she's not looking at whale parts, she's best known for studying duck genitalia, a topic that's given her a somewhat eccentric reputation. At first, that was a good thing. She got noticed by other scientists who cited her work as influential in reproductive biology. But then the attention took a turn. 
Starting in 2013, several conservative websites accused her of using federal dollars on useless research. They were attacking everything, right? So they were attacking the science itself, like, what a waste of money. They were attacking uh, me as a person, like, I must be some kind of deviant to be looking at penises. Like, who does that? Brennan's is not the only strange-sounding research to face political ridicule. Among the targets of conservative pundits, studies of robotic squirrels, aquatic plants, and scientists who study water quality and shellfish and who once posted what they thought was a fun video of a shrimp scampering underwater on a mini treadmill. Well, we have one creative federal government. Here's Fox News a few years ago. This is a shrimp exercising on a treadmill. Martha, do you know how much we spent on this research? How much Much of the press was sensationalist and dismissive, without input from scientists. Still, Brennan says she understands why a layperson might not see how obscure studies are relevant to them. When people ask me that question, typically what they're asking is, how is this going to make money? Or how is it going to improve human health? In the short term, it will do neither. Basic science, like hers, goes into a well of knowledge that other scientists use over many years and could one day lead to a breakthrough. For example, observing rat mothers licking their pups led to dramatic changes in the care of premature human babies. A study on how honeybees forage led to better computer networks. In order for us to actually be able to solve problems or make money or innovate, you know, we actually need to know about the world. We need to know about how the world works. And she says it's high time for scientists to explain that. After Brennan's duck research was attacked, most of her colleagues told her to sit tight and wait for it to blow over. It turns out it's a really terrible idea. Because the attacks snowball, there's no counter-narrative. And the stakes for science have never been higher, as President Trump's budget threatens to dramatically slash funding for everything from health research to basic science. That blindsided many scientists who'd been quietly, some say naively, immersed in their work. They think basic research is an obvious good, and everyone understands that, and they sort of aren't able to understand why anyone would propose cutting something that everyone agrees is great. Historian Melinda Baldwin studies political attacks on science. While today it's mostly Republicans who argue against science funding, she says the trend started in the 1970s with a Democratic congressman, William Proxmire, who would give out what he called the Golden Fleece Award for projects he considered wasteful. It was becoming a little bit trendy to attack scientific grants that sounded like they weren't beneficial to the American public. What's made things worse over the last decade, Baldwin says, is the polarization of climate science, which has confused facts with politics and belief. It doesn't help that for years, scientists themselves have kept out of the political fray. Science was slow to react to the threat, and there are more threats. Jim Cooper is a longtime Democratic congressman from Tennessee and self-described science nerd. Cooper started the Golden Goose Awards in 2012, a spin on Proxmire's Golden Fleece Awards. But in the new version, the award honors examples of inventive, federally funded science. When you show that incredible discoveries were achieved by studying these arcane and unusual and weird-sounding things, that takes your opponent's ridicule away and actually turns it into a benefit. Cooper is strongly against Trump's proposed cuts to the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation. He says the private sector, which profits from science, will never support research to the extent government can.
so he encourages scientists to make a fuss outside their comfort zone. I would try to organize the science faculties. I would try to get them to cooperate first with each other because there's bureaucracy and jealousy sometimes. Mount Holyoke's Patricia Brennan is now a sought-after science activist. She gives lectures and writes articles urging scientists to defend what they do, including or especially the weird-sounding stuff. She'll be at the Science March in Washington, but what she'd really like to do is get back to the lab and take another look at that killer whale penis. For New England Public Radio, I'm Karen Brown. That report aired last week, so by now, Dr. Brennan has already gone to the March for Science. And wouldn't you know it, within a couple days of that story airing, a couple of conservative websites went on the attack. Two remarkably similar stories, but with different authors. The headline in the Washington Free Beacon, quote, Taxpayer-funded duck penis researcher now studying whale penises. And on the website called Liberty News Now, duck penis researcher now studying whale penises with taxpayer funds. Okay, so not really the point of the story, but hey, at least they included a link to NEPR.net. NEPR.net, a website that coincidentally, my friends, you can go to if you'd like to support this podcast and all the news and music that New England Public Radio delivers to your car, your home, and your phone. Just click the bright orange Donate button at the top of the page. Thanks for listening to NEPR News Now, stories you really should not miss. Until next time. 